Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. welcome you uh, today. My name is Steven. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. Um, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you and connect with you. There, you'll find a blue card in your seat that you could fill out um, for doing so. We would love to connect with you and we'll send you a $5 gift card to Brassica Coffee Shop, which is right around the corner, as well as make a $5 donation to a local or to a charity uh, in your name. And so this is a thank you for, for being here this morning. Um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that Um, We were once separated from God because of our sin and now have been brought near to God through the work of Jesus on the cross by simply placing our faith and trust in Jesus alone to save us. And anyone who has uh, who enters into that relationship through faith is can be saved. And so we'd love to talk with you about that if you'd like to enter into that relationship. Secondly, community, the the idea that we were made for relationships. We were made for relationships with each other. Um, Again, people from every ethnicity, walk of life, tribe, tongue, and nation brought together with a common hope in Jesus. And then mission, the idea that good news is meant to be told. So we tell others about what Christ has done. We tell them about um, what he's done for us by saving us. And then also live lives shaped by Jesus so that others would know him. And so um, those those are our values as a church. Uh, A couple of announcements before we jump into the text today. Uh, The first is uh, the God, Gender, and Sexuality Seminar that's coming up on Saturday, January 29th. Uh, We're going to be looking at what the Bible teaches about uh, gender and sexuality. And uh, this is going to be a really, I think, timely seminar for us. Um, Rachel Gilson, who's a part of Hope uh, Fellowship in Cambridge, is going to be leading out on this. Um, She uh, has written uh, written on this extensively. Um, Would really encourage you to come to come. This is going to be from nine o'clock to one o'clock. Lunch will be provided. Um, it, the cost is $25, but that, that covers your lunch. And uh, you can actually just mark on a connection card, any of those cards, drop them in the box. We'll send you a link just because the sensitive nature of the topic. We're not putting the link out publicly on our event page, but I can get that to you either by doing that or I can email you Stephen at uh, coahchurch.org. Um, or if you're in our Slack feed or our newsletter, you'll find the... Um, uh, you'll find the, the link there as well. Uh, our next Discover membership class is coming up on February 4th at seven o'clock. That's a Friday night. We will feed you dinner. So if that's not a good enough hook, um, we'll make sure that uh, we, we do that for you. So make sure you come to that. This is our first step in uh, becoming a member, but if you're not ready to be a member, that's okay. This is an opportunity to discover who we are as a church, to help you um, just know who we are, what we believe, and, uh, and help you get connected to what's going on at City on a Hill. And then lastly, community groups are starting back this week week. Um, and by the way, you can go get that uh, event at our event page, coloforestills.org slash events. Uh, community groups start back this week. Community groups are the way that we uh, do life together as a church is how we encourage one another, study God's word in the middle of the week. And so um, if you're not connected to a community group, just mark it on that card and we will make sure that we um, get you connected. But wanted to make sure everybody knows that we're jumping back in this week. We'll make sure that we take proper uh, COVID precautions and everything. 
But I want to welcome everyone back. We've had a couple of weeks away. Um, as a church, we are connected to a network of churches called City on a Hill. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been gathering together in other locations. Some of you have been able to come be a part of that. I want to say a big thank you to City on a Hill Somerville for hosting our, our Christmas Eve service. Uh, City on a Hill Brighton hosted us on the day after Christmas. And then last week, we did a joint service with City on a Hill Brookline. So a big Thank you to them as they allowed us to come worship with them. They gave our volunteers a break. Many people were traveling. As I mentioned earlier, we have several people who actually have COVID right now or in COVID quarantine. So be sure to be praying for them, checking in on them uh, uh, as well this week. And so this morning we're jumping into or back into the book of Ephesians. And this passage comes at a really timely moment because it is New Year's. Now, when it comes to New Year's, uh, we all want to, or many of us, make New Year's resolutions. So how many of you made a New Year's resolution this year? How many of you have already broken your New Year's resolution? Okay, so some, some, some of us are like, we're never gonna eat carbs again. It's like, but you've obviously never had pasta. So like, I mean, like we, we, we want to have a, put a good foot forward at the beginning of the year to live this, you know, new year, new me, whatever it might be. And we want to, we want to do this because we, we sense this idea. And I don't know why it's always at the beginning of the year that we need something new. We need something different. We need a different way of living. And at the beginning or in the middle of uh, Ephesians chapter four, we see Paul calling us to a new way of life. To give us a recap of what we've looked at so far in the book of Ephesians that we started back in in September, um, Paul has been giving this vision for a new community, a new type of community, uh, a, a new people who are called together to live in a new way. So these people are called together by Jesus and they're called to live radically different lives with a new hope in Jesus. And where we left off a couple weeks ago was the idea that we had this uncommon unity in Jesus that brings us together across ethnicity, brings us uh, together across gender, it brings us together across um, anything that might divide us, anything that might that, where we might miss each other and misunderstand each other. It brings us together as a beautiful new family. We're brought together. Um, and then we looked at how each of us, as we come to faith in Christ, are gifted to serve one another. So we need each other in order to grow as Christians. Like I need you, you need me. The, the gifting that God has given me is good for you. The, God, the gifting that God has given you is for me. These things help us grow. And today we're going to be looking at the new life that Jesus calls us to. And really the rest of the series is going to be unpacking what this new life looks like. Everything we've looked at so far is preparing us for this new life, this new identity in Jesus, the fact that we have a re redemption, we've been adopted, we have an inheritance, all that is preparing us for this new life. And then really this is the first time in the book of Ephesians that we are addressed as individuals. The thing about the Christian faith is that we are the church, but you have to make your faith your own. I can't believe for you. Your parents can't believe for you. Your children cannot believe for you. You have to believe on your own. You, ha you have to make it your own. You have to personally receive Jesus as your Savior and personally follow him as Lord. But we do get to, the, to do this in the context of community. We could do this in the context of a safe and caring community of people who will walk with us in our stumbles and our struggles and point us to Jesus. We have people who will care for us. We have people who will support us and give us accountability. But for each of us, we are called to change because of who Jesus is. No one came to Jesus and came away with a, with a lukewarm reception. They came to Jesus and they were changed or they walked away from him. And you might hear when we think about this idea of living a new life, you might be thinking, okay, look, Christians and their rules. 
Christians have all these rules, and these are the rules that you have to live by in order to get into the church or get into the family. And oftentimes we see rules, and we see the way that we're called to live as the church as a means of entry. It determines who's in and who's out. But that's really not what Jesus invites us to. Jesus invites us to a way of living. And the reality is is that everyone, every religion, every way of life is making the exact same claim. They're claiming that there are certain things you can do or there are certain things that you can't do. There are certain things that lead to flourishing and there are certain things that don't. Culturally, there are things that our culture values, things that our culture says are right and wrong. And that if you live this way and you accept these things, then you're on the in crowd. And if you don't, you're not. But the problem with culture is it's a constantly moving target. All of us are searching for a way to live our lives that leads to life. And every way that claims this, every way, whether it claims to be religious or not, is a religious way. Because it's not just claiming this is why we exist, but this is how you get to the good life. This is how you get to a place of flourishing. So Christianity's claim that Jesus is the only way is no more narrow than than pluralism. Pluralism says that every way leads to heaven, but what pluralism does is it puts a burden on every belief system and says, you have to believe your belief system this way for it to be good. So you can't be a Christian that says that Jesus is the only way to heaven. You can't be a Buddhist who says that you have to walk this path. You can't be a Muslim. You you have to do it the way we say you do it. But what if Christianity's claim is not about keeping certain people out? It's not about saying you need to follow these rules in order to get into God's good graces, but it's actually an invitation to the only way to God. It's an invitation to the only way to live that leads to flourishing. It's no more mean or cruel or exclusionary to say this than to say that to drive on the left side of the road is wrong in America. It's gonna get you killed. It's gonna get somebody else hurt. It's leading us to life. And what Paul is saying is all these other things, all these other ways, all these other ways that you could possibly live will ultimately lead to death. And that's why evangelism, the idea of sharing our faith, is not pushing our faith on other people. It's telling good news. Because if what we believe is true, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that there is no other way to be reconciled to God, the most loving thing we can possibly do is tell people where real joy comes from tell people where salvation comes from, tell people where life comes from. And so this morning, I wanna invite you into the life that Jesus promises us and the life and the way of living that Jesus asks us to live. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you've been asked by Jesus to live a radically different life in light of what Jesus has done for you. And if you're not yet a Christian this morning, I want you to consider Jesus's message. We're glad that you're here. Consider what Jesus is inviting you into. Consider, is this the better life? Is this the greater and truer joy that God could be promising me? And so the call for us this morning is to put off the old way, to put off the old self, to put off the old man and to put on the new self. So let's look at that together this morning. Putting on the new self starts with remembering who you are and remembering who you were who you are and who you were. The passage starts with a negative command. This negative command tells us, it says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
It starts with a negative command, don't do this. Now, the thing about this is, aren't the people that Paul is writing to Gentiles, aren't, they're like, wait a minute, like, you, you're talking about me, like, I can't be me anymore, I gotta, gotta lay this down, I gotta stop listening to my kind of music and eating my kind of food, and I gotta, I gotta live this other way. That's not what Paul's saying. He's, saying. he's not saying you lose your ethnicity. He's not, this isn't an ethnic command, this is a spiritual command. You can no longer live spiritually like Gentiles. The word for Gentile is those who are outside of the promises of God, those who are outside God's covenant family. So in the Old Testament, you have the Hebrew people, God's special people. And in the New Testament, you see this idea of the Gentiles, all nations being brought in and grafted into this promised family. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that there is a way that you can no longer live because of what God has done for you. You can no longer live this way because that's not who you are anymore. And he uses the word walk as an indication of a, it's really a manner of life. You can no longer live your life like you're, not, like, you're, like you're not saved. You can no longer live your life like someone who's been separated from God. See, a manner of life is what you identify with. It's what you value most. And in verse 20, we see it says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Because you know Christ, you know Jesus, you've experienced his forgiveness, you've seen the removal of your shame and your guilt. You, you've seen how good he is, you, you really can't go back. You identify with him because he identified with you. That is not who you are anymore, or as how, how Harold Honer says, one cannot be a Christian and a non-Christian at the same time. What, is this, what does this former life look like? What does it look like to live a life like a Gentile? This is a metaphor for how the world operates, what the world values. And it's really what's over and against God and his word. And it's the opposite of what verse chapter four, verse one says, where it says that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling of, to which you've been called. Verse 17 here says that it is a futile way of thinking and living. It doesn't actually get you what you long for. And there's this deep longing in the sense that you're never gonna get there. It's like, we, we got a Christmas card this year. <clears throat> this is both my favorite and least favorite Christmas card, full of glitter. So I open the Christmas card and glitter goes everywhere. And I can say, well, who sent this card? Because they, who knows, they may be watching. And so <clears throat> open the card, glitter goes everywhere. If you've ever tried to clean up glitter, it is futile. I will have glitter in my beard for the rest of eternity. Like there, there is, you're never gonna get it cleaned up. The way of living that is living like a Gentile is futile because it will never get you to where you actually wanna go. It will never actually lead to life. And it creates this angst and this feeling of deep dissatisfaction that you're constantly trying to fill. And there's a pattern that emerges from this text that shows us what this way of living looks like. And we see that it is a willful rejection of God. We are helpless as sinners, but we are not guiltless. We are helpless. We cannot save ourselves, but we do this willfully. We have willfully run from God. And before you enter into a relationship with Jesus, and all of us have been there at some point, and some, some of us are still searching and, and discovering, but all of us were here at this one point, it starts with a hardness of heart. Verse 18 says that it was due to this. And verse 18, it says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So all of that sense of darkness and alienation is due to a hardness towards God and his word. 
It all flows from that. That word hard, uh, hardness of heart there is, means literally like a stone. It's impenetrable. It's described in verse 20 as callous. It's, it, this old, the old way of life, the old way of sin starts with hardening our hearts towards God and his words. And what this means is that we are unwilling to let it penetrate our lives and change us. It's, it's a bit like a bank vault. A bank, vault, a bank vault has a really thick door. And so and that door is intended to not let anything in or let anything get out. What happens when our hearts get hardened is we're not willing to let God's word penetrate us and convict us and change us. What happens is we become convinced that we know best. And this hardness of heart leads to a darkening of understanding, a darkness of understanding. The, word, the words in the Bible show us that God's word is described as light. The Old Testament imagery says that it was light unto our path. It was to show us how to live. And we need this light to understand and comprehend God's world rightly. It'd be like trying to read the instructions in the dark. It's an inability to process moral goodness, to see God's beauty. This darkness of understanding causes us to look for something else. And what happens when this hardness of heart sets in and, and, uh, and we, we don't understand is it leads to alienation from God. We feel this, this sense that we don't know God, the sense that we don't know who we are intended to be connected to. We're not experiencing his promises. We feel distant from God, which causes us to long for and search for other things. And we see in verse, uh, verse 19 that they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It leads to this sense of false freedom that sin promises. This callousness of heart, it desensitizes us towards God and, and, this, and the, his calling to us and leads us to seek out all other sorts of joy. The word sensuality means freedom with no bounds. Our culture values this. This is a cultural value, sensuality, because what our culture is constantly telling us is be you. Do you, do, do, do whatever you wanna do. And authentic self-expression is the highest cultural value that we have in America. Do whatever makes you happy, no matter what the cost, no matter what anyone says, do what you wanna do. And, and James K.A. Smith says that this is not real freedom. It's false freedom. We, we, are, we are never freed from everything. We are freed towards something. Freedom from something will always lead in, into enslavement to something. This freedom from, which says do whatever you want to do and, and whatever you want is going to truly free you will eventually enslave you because whatever you give yourself to to find freedom will eventually come calling. Whatever you give yourself to to find freedom will eventually entrap you and enslave you that anything you do, will, eventually you will, be, will have to call it master. So let's say that you've lived your entire life based on success. You're going to jettison every relationship and every entanglement and you're not going to you know you're not going to call mom, you're not going to do anything. You're not going to live for anybody else so that you can be free to pursue success. Eventually success will become your master because everything in your life will be dictated upon achieving success. This type of freedom really doesn't truly work for the way that God's called us to live because it's impossible to love other people if you're freed from everything. Let's put this to the test. As a husband who leaves his wife and kids for the sake of freedom, truly loving anyone? No, this, this is greediness. It says here that the sensuality is, is truly greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
this, this deep down covetousness to do whatever we want to do by whatever means, and every single one of us struggles with that because we want something that someone else has. I mean, it's, it's, it's from the time that you're a small child, if you have a sibling, they have something you want it. Just because they have it, you want it. We look at another person and say, man, I really wish I had that person's relationship. And I really wish I had their job. The situation that they're in is so much better than the situation I'm in. Their, their upbringing where both parents were home seems so much better than mine. I'd, I'd take their problems. Those are first world problems. I'd, I'd take those. More money, more problems. Really, I'll do whatever it is. But it's impossible to love your neighbor if you constantly want what he or she has. And none of those things are necessarily bad longings. It's not, it's not bad to long for a relationship. It's not bad to want a better job or to a different situation or even the longing of a broken upbringing. Like th- th- those aren't bad things to long for and want to see different. But if it causes us to, be, to constantly want that from someone else, we can't possibly love them. And so we see the path of sin, which starts with a hard heart and it leads to this darkness of understanding and an alienation from God, which causes us to give in to sin that eventually entraps us. And what we do every single time that we sin is we act out that plague. We repeat Adam and Eve's sin. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They hardened their heart toward God, believing that God was somehow holding out on them. And they darkened their mind to somehow convince themselves that the serpent was telling them the truth. They felt a distance from God. They gave into it and then were enslaved by it. And we repeat that every single time. And that's why John Mark Comer says that Satan didn't come with a stick to attack, but an idea to implant. Sin always starts with a lie, starts with a lie that God just won't provide for you. God is holding out on you. God is asking way too much of you. He's not truly good. You'll never be satisfied with him. Every Christmas, we watch Lord of the Rings. It is a yearly tradition at our house. Um, And the more that I read and watch Lord of the Rings, the more intrigued I am by Gollum, the more I actually feel for Gollum. Because in, in fact, it says very clearly in the movie, Gollum both loves and hates the ring. He loves the ring, but he hates the ring. He knows the ring is lying to him, but he keeps returning to the ring. He's been hurt by the ring. He's been abandoned by the ring. He's lost everything, yet he still craves it. It accuses him, but yet he still wants it. And you see this one moment of clarity, in, 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 you can really see this well in the movie, where you see this moment of clarity where Gollum finally really remembers who he is. Frodo calls him by his actual name. He calls him Smeagol. And all of a sudden, you can see the guilt and the shame and the lies begin to fade away. You and I are exactly the same. We both love and hate the lie because we keep running back to that, the lie that underlies our sin that we know will never satisfy us. What sin do you keep running back to? What lie do you keep believing will lead you to lie? See, here's what the gospel reminds you of. The gospel reminds you of who you are. It reminds you of your name. It reminds you that your name has been written down in heaven for eternity if you are a follower of Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus is telling you that this life can be yours because of who you are in Christ, that you can put on the new self and put off the old self because this new life is a path for a new and better life. So how do we put on the new self? We're gonna look at this two ways. We put on the new self reactively and we put on the new self proactively. And so the the way we do this reactively is through repentance. Repentance helps us reactively put on the new self. 
Verses 22 through 24 are what repentance looks like. It's the putting off of one way to put on another. It's laying down one thing to put for something else. And so repentance literally means to turn. It's a 180 degree turn. It's, it's leaving one way for another. It's giving up something else to trust that something is good and better. And in one way, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you've already done this. You have already put off the old self and put on the new self. You've already put off the old identifier and put on the new identifier. You are now, now no longer considered a sinner before God, but you are considered a saint. You are no longer uh, separated from God, but you are now a child. We have done this. We've put this off. We put off the old self, the old way of living, the old master for a new life with Jesus through repentance and faith, through trusting Jesus to save you, to be your Lord. And so repentance and faith is a reaction to seeing your sin and seeing the beauty and the forgiveness of Jesus, a response to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so the first step of becoming a Christian is getting honest about your sin. It's getting honest about the old self that you still wear. It's being honest about your guilt and your shame, and you have to see it. You have to understand it. You have to deal with it. Some of us drive around with warning lights on our car and it looks like a Christmas tree on the dashboard. There's all these different lights. And you're like, ooh, a lamp, it's a genie. Like, like we look at that and like we think it's not a big deal, but all of those warning lights are telling us something. They're telling us you need to get your car into the shop. And so if you see that little block that looks like an engine, all of a sudden you're like, hmm, I gotta go to the mechanic or go to Rick. I don't wanna put Rick out. But um, you gotta go to somebody. Somebody's gotta take a look at that engine because something is wrong, desperately wrong with your car. And you go into the mechanic, the mechanic gets under the hood, runs some diagnostics, comes back and says, man, this thing is shot. You've got to get a new engine. Now, some of us are skeptical. We're like, he's just here to rip me off. I can get 50,000 more miles out of this thing. Some of us just want to downplay it. We're like, you know, it's not that big a deal. I'll handle it down the road a little bit later. We don't really want to address it or deal with it. Tony Evans says that many people want God to give them a new life, a new job, or a new situation, but they don't want him to touch anything. Until we see under the hood of our lives, until you, until you know how badly you need to change, you'll never change. How badly that you need a new heart. But the good news is, just like the mechanic coming to you, no matter how costly it may seem, is we can fix this. We can replace that engine. This car can keep going down the road. In repentance, we are responding and saying that we need a new heart, that we can turn from our old ways and the old sins that we cling to, the old ways that we try to do good on our own and turn to Jesus who gives us life. And if you've not done that this morning, I invite you to do so. The invitation, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. I invite you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to do so if you've not done that. But once you've done that, once you've placed your faith in Jesus, once you've thrown off the old man and put on the new man, the old self, the new self, once you've done that, you have all that you need to put off the old habits that come with the old life. Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance and belief, repentance and belief, repentance and belief, not to save you again, but to take up Jesus on his word that he's already done so. And our temptation as Christians, as anyone, is to constantly run back to our sins. So I want to show you a quick video that is a demonstration of how we continue to run back into our sin. So this is like Jesus saving us and dragging us out of our sin. And we happily jump right back in. That is all of us, right? And do you know what the shepherd's going to do? 
the shepherd's going to walk over there, grab that sheep by the feet again, and pull her out. Why? Because he's a good shepherd. That's what Jesus does for us every single time we sin and every single time we return. Every single time we call for help, he has his arms open wide, welcoming welcoming us back to repent when we sin. Verse John, verses nine, uh, for one through one nine through the beginning of chapter two says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to clean us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, repentance is an act of worship. Repentance is not promising God, I'll do better next time. But it's placing our faith completely in Jesus to rescue us. Many of us, when we repent, we do a half turn. We say, God, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. And we do that because it makes us feel better. But what repentance, true repentance invites us to do is to turn to Jesus alone saying, not only I'm sorry for my sin, but Jesus, I'm sorry for believing that I could keep myself out of sin. I need you. I trust you alone. And this comes through seeing Jesus. This is the second Lord of the Rings uh, example today because I just watched it, so just bear with me. But at the end of the Lord of the Rings book, there's, there's a place where Sam sees Gandalf alive for the first time. And he says, in this moment, by seeing Gandalf, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? In repentance, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we actually see the undoing, the, 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 the sad thing coming untrue, the undoing of the lies. Because what happens when we repent is our hearts actually soften instead of harden. When we repent, we, see the light, we have light to see the goodness and the beauty of Jesus, the futility of our sin. Instead of feeling alienation from God, we feel closeness and communion with God. We feel welcome. Instead of being given to the recklessness of our sin, we're called to trust and obedience that what God asks us to do is good. See, repentance is a foretaste of a day of an uninterrupted life with God where sin will be no more. And repentance is a, is a call for us to look to Jesus. And we experience this through renewal. Renewal is how we proactively put on the new self. It prepares our hearts for repentance as we experience renewal, a proactive putting on of the new self. God's goal for each of us is that we would look like Jesus. Romans 8 says that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that we would be a holy people, that we'd be a righteous people, that we would look like God. And the problem is, is that you don't drift into that. You don't drift into holiness. You're not conformed by just kind of vegging. Like you have to, it takes consistent, regular, repeated action for us to experience renewal. See, we are being formed by something or someone, every single one of us. You may not think this, but everything you are doing is forming you in some way. Business gurus have often said that you become the the five people you spend the most time with. And so if you want to be successful, spend time with successful people. You'll be kind, spend time with kind people. And I don't know if that's totally true, but I do think that they're on to something. John, John Mark Homer says that what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. In other words, what gets the most attention from you? 
Now, the passage uses the word mind, uses the word understand, and we can think intellect or mental, but in the ancient world, the mind and the heart were connected. They were, the, they were really the same thing. It's not just what gets your attention, but what gets your affection. What does your heart want the most? Because what you give yourself to, what you practice will form you. And James K. Smith calls these cultural liturgies. In other words, cultural habits that will ultimately form you. And so maybe it's political. Maybe you spend way too much time watching Fox News or CNN. That will eventually form you. How many of you, what is the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning? You start reaching for your cell phone like it's a lost appendage. I know I do that. Can I get, a, can I get an amen? We do that. We start looking at text messages. We look at Twitter. We look at, at the news. And that shapes us. Sexually, we, we, we are shaped by what we view. We're shaped by what we think about. We're shaped by what we practice. Ethically, we're shaped by our pursuit of power or success or gratification. And this is why Paul invites you and I to renew our minds in the Spirit. We need something to combat the 24-7 news cycle of, of, of constant bombardment of information. Combat a world that puts you and I at the center. This is if you just do enough and you be enough and you experience enough, you're going to be all right. But Jesus, through renewal, invites us to himself to put on the new self. Verse 21 says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in, is in Jesus. The assuming here is not an accusation. It's not saying, well, if you were a better Christian, you would do the right things. It's basically saying on the assumption, on the belief that Jesus has done this for you, you can change. You can grow. You can put off the old ways and pursue godliness because you learned Christ. Not learned about Christ, but you know Christ. You know Jesus intimately. And here's how you learn a person that takes time, consistency, and vulnerability. And if you remove any of those pieces from the equation, you lose something. If you don't spend time with someone consistently, you'll never be vulnerable. And if you're never vulnerable with someone, you're never gonna wanna spend time with them. When we come before God, often, consistently, and are vulnerable, God will shape and change us. We see that he is the truth. And when we see Jesus is the truth, it puts all other competing joys in the proper context. Jamie, uh, Jackie L. Perry says, that, says this. She says, could it be that God would not have me going about the rest of my life believing that these lesser forms of love were the real thing? Perhaps this love he filled to the brim with was pouring over into his dealings with me. And perhaps this love was compelling him on the basis of grace and undeserved love to help me see that every person, place, or thing that I loved more than him could not keep its promise to love me eternally. And what happens is we experience this renewal and we see the love of God, we realize God is not holding out. God is not being cruel. He's, he's not wrong to ask you or I to change because he's a friend of sinners. What is it that Jesus is asking you to give up in order to follow him? And Jesus only asked this because he gave up everything for your sake on the cross to bring you into a relationship with him. As we close, I just wanna give you a few practices of renewal that we enter into as, as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus, or even those who are pursuing a relationship with Jesus. would love to grow in that and, and explore that. You're doing one right now. Sunday morning worship is one of the most fundamental ways that you can grow. 
And Jesus and his church, we welcome you. This is a habit that forms you. We were taking time to stop, slow down, and receive God's grace. And so if you're sporadic, I encourage you to press in and be regular with this. Be faithful to a local church. If Sitting under God's word each week will change you. If you're regular, ask yourself, what can I do to contribute so that other people can experience this joy? Secondly is Sabbath rest. We need to take time to cease from work and trust that God is at work. Fasting, which we're gonna talk about in a few weeks when we start looking at Lent. Um, I really do think one of the most countercultural ways that we can follow Jesus today is to, not, to, not, uh, to deny ourselves. And, and this is the way we do that through Lent. But ultimately, the way we do this each and every day is through reading the Bible and through prayer. Um, in fact, you'll see a number on the screen. You can text GROW to 617-958-6008. We'd love to send you our discipleship plan for this year. And it's a little bit different this year. We actually have an option. You'll fill out a form when you do, the, when you do this. If you want to read with, with someone, maybe you're like, man, I really struggle to read the Bible. We'll set you up with a partner. Maybe you're like, man, I just really need some encouragement and some reminders because I know how these things typically go is we start out real hot and heavy on a, on a reading plan. We're like, yes, I'm gonna do this. And about February hits and we're really sad because we were like four weeks behind. And so um, sometimes we just need a text reminder. You can set up to get a text reminder for that. But whatever it is, let's step into these practices of renewal. Because as we do, we, we begin to see our need to repent. And as we repent, we see how God is meeting us and making us new. So let's pray as we turn to communion. 